Good morning and welcome to Cornerbrook Baptist. We had hoped originally that the, um, the change in our alert level here in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador would change some things for us this Sunday. However, the restrictions are still too onerous upon us for us to, uh, to take that step at the present time. And so we'll be coming to you only on, in an online manner this week and we will be getting back to you and making announcements in plenty of time to advise our congregation uh, as these matters unfold. And today I want to talk to you about diversionary tactics. What a great term. Diversionary tactics are actions that are designed to draw attention to a lesser goal, to create conditions for a greater goal. It's now a lot of years ago, but it's what we would often try on Friday afternoons to avoid working at all or getting extra homework on the weekends. A lot of students would do their very best Friday afternoon to preoccupy the teacher. We'd throw questions at him or her, and we especially included topics about what we knew their favorite interests or their pet peeves were. Sometimes the bell rang and we escaped. No weekend work. In sports, it's like the fake injury that gives a team enough of a, a break in time to make a good run towards the end of the game. Uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus offered encountered people who like to use diversionary tactics, or as we say, to skirt an issue. They never wanted to get to the root of a problem. They'd sooner hang around something that was superficial. They tried to step around issues, especially where they knew they wouldn't fare all that well. But Jesus was on a true mission. He had to get to a person's heart. Didn't do this out of malice. He didn't do it out of a lack of care for a, for a person. Jesus had their best interests at heart. But he certainly knew how to spot diversionary tactics and would always stay true to, to his mission. And one of the finest examples of this is Jesus' interaction that takes place in John chapter 4, verses 4 to 14. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then in brackets after that statement or that question, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water 
welling up to eternal life. Now let me put this story in context in just a, a few sentences as we look at the setting. 1,700 years before Jesus was born, a rich and powerful chieftain by the name of Jacob paid 100 pieces of money, according to the scriptural record, for a parcel of land to spread his tent. On the spot, Jacob dug a well that was about 80 feet deep. It was not a big well at the top, only three feet wide, but under the ground, the well expands to nearly 10 feet in diameter. It must have been built by Jacob at tremendous expense in labor. Today, on the site of Jacob's well, there's a Greek Orthodox church, and around it are the remains of churches that go back as far as the Crusaders of the 11th century. Jacob's well is one of the best authenticated sites in the whole of the New Testament. It's also the site of one of the most gripping encounters that Jesus had with anybody. He stopped at the site following a simple explanation to his disciples. I must go through Samaria. It was a place where few Jews would travel. The dispute between the two groups of people was long-standing and exceptionally bitter. But if he had to stop there, this well about 700 yards from Sychar was a good place to escape the noonday heat. The disciples headed into town to buy bread. And we know one other disciple must have stayed behind person who was eyewitness to this amazing encounter. When Jesus sat at this well, he would have seen more than we can. He may have remembered that one of the patriarchs, Jacob, would have sat at the well and watered the flocks and herds. If he looked around, to one side would have been Mount Ebal, 3,000 feet high, the Mount of Cursing, and across from it, Mount Gerizim, the Mount of Blessing. Between these two mountains in the Old Testament story, Joshua stopped the children of Israel in their entrance to the promised land. On Mount Ebal, they called out the curses for disobedience, and on Gerizim, they enumerated the blessings for faithfulness. Gerizim was a temple built by the Samaritans as well, right next to where they were. But it was built in opposition to the temple in Jerusalem. Just being there brought back thousands of years of memories, and it would have brought back so much bad blood. Jesus was tired after his journey. Any kind of breeze would have coated the travelers with a fine coating of limestone dust. The sun was hottest at noon, and it would have required 80 feet of rope to get to the cool water of the well. It's unlikely he would meet anyone because people usually came to the well in the cool of the morning or the evening. But one solitary woman comes to the well at noon. The water pot is likely perched on the top of her head in, in traditional fashion. But she's not your typical lady. She comes to this well, although there's another located inside the town, at the wrong time of day. She's alone when generally women gathered to have a chat at the well. She obviously wants to be alone. There's more protection for her under the heat of the midday sun than there is in the company of the people of her town. You see, a person's life is in danger when they have to seek protection in silence, when they have to risk being seen. 
when safety is achieved in anonymity. But people do take refuge in distance, and her arrival at the well at this time was her first diversionary tactic. See, we have a saying that still goes on to this day. There are times when I have heard it said the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans, but it's rooted in biblical reality. Why were there no dealings? Not a difficult question. The short version is that during the Assyrian captivity, foreigners were planted in the land to dilute the bloodlines and help to kill national pride. Also during these oppressive times, people were, de were, de were deported and other people were brought in and some intermarriage took, took place. The Jews of the South despised those mixed breeds of the North. They were not permitted to help rebuild the temple. The Samaritans retaliated by building their own center of worship on Mount Gerizim. They engineered their version of the books of Moses, the five first books of the, of the Old Testament, and through, through the years, the Samaritans perpetrated sneak attacks to defile the temple in Jerusalem and were also known for attacks on pilgrims. Historically, the answer of, of their dealings is easy to interpret. But it's more than history that keeps them apart. Consider this. An Orthodox Jewish male could not speak to a Jewish woman out of doors, even if he knew her and even if she was his mother or his sister. How much less a righteous Jew talked to a non-Jewish woman, so obviously out of place. For a rabbi to do so was absolutely unthinkable. For a rabbi to speak to this woman was nigh on to impossible. Now, can you understand the implications of Jesus' request when he turns to her and says, would you give me a drink? She came with, very likely with 80 feet of rope coiled around her waist to avoid a meeting. She would have nearly lost her pot when that question was asked. She was despised even beyond being a Samaritan. Did you know that the only request a man could make of a woman he didn't know was... Would you give me a drink? The only opportunity for Jesus to reach this woman would have been at the well. It was the one and only place where such an encounter could have taken place. Now, the small talk didn't last very long. Someone could easily interrupt them. But the conflict is also immediate there. Jesus reached to touch her heart, and she initiated diversionary tactics. He probed, and she put up barriers. It's always, you see, the word of Jesus that shakes us up. He says to this woman, and you heard the cryptic comment, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. It drew her out a little bit. He began where this woman was, water. Precious, cool, life-sustaining water. And she pointed to the obvious you have nothing to draw with. Then asked the question, what is this living water? Are you greater than Jacob? And Jesus pointed to the well, says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I will, I will give him will never thirst. Indeed, and here's the, here's the added part, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Then she's a little less evasive. She opens up a little. 
give me that water, I won't have to come back here. Now Jesus is closer to why she is there alone at noon. If she never has to draw water again, her hiding can be easier. She wants distance because when distance is not there any longer, it prevents her vulnerability. But now Jesus can't be indirect any longer. He pushes forward. He begins to rip off a little of the mask that she wears and gives her one request. Go get your husband. Now she can't evade him. She opens the door to her life a little bit. I have no husband. And Jesus, without any viciousness, without any self-righteousness, agrees and tells her he understands her life. But he's not there to injure her or to make her grovel. Rather, Jesus sees a lost woman who's floundering as an outcast. She's trapped by the life that has been wrecked around her. Jesus is about his father's business. He is just not a set of prying eyes. He stands with a picture of living water to pour it over her thirsty, needy soul. Conviction is at work here. But this woman still has a little bit of fight left. And here comes another common diversionary tactic. Religion. Always seems to be the one to get rid of Jesus. Ironically so. She won't deal with her morality. She won't talk about her husband's. Instead, she wants to argue about where prayers ought to be said. She wants a wedge between her and this man who's questioning her so she doesn't have to change. And how typical that is. Find an excuse by pointing to another person's failure or go back to some kind of a past hurt or injury and Jesus standing there all of the time with living water. Looking towards Mount Gerizim, she says, that's where I go to church, but you say I've got to go to your church. Smoke screen. She's trying to cloud her real needs with some kind of religious froth. Jesus cuts through her defenses as he does through ours, like a surgeon. She uses evasive maneuvers, but he really keeps her in the valley of decision. That's where they are talking, literally. She is where the children of Israel were when Joshua said, choose who you're going to serve. The water in Jacob's well will never substitute for the water Jesus offers. She's moments away from true freedom for the first time in her life. And I like what Jesus does. He doesn't try to make her Jewish. He doesn't send her off to Jerusalem. He doesn't condemn her for her Samaritan roots. He didn't sell her tapes and put her on his mailing list. He didn't try to get any money from her. He brings her simply to God. Now all avenues of escape are gone. Her issue is not religious controversy, but it's the load of guilt that she carries that only God can deal with. See, the only way out for this woman is to go into the arms of a loving father whose son is offering her living water. This woman, let me say today, is representative of multitudes of people today, thirsty people, people in the valley of decision, people who are trying to live down or get through something, but people who need their escape halted and need to be confronted with the offer 
of living water. The woman had finally met someone who knew her and offered her something more than disgust and condemnation. Jesus' message was firm, but a sweet chorus of compassion also played across her soul. She knew that the Messiah had been promised. She knew that he would reveal the secrets of our hearts. She knew it was decision time. Her heart was was talking when Jesus moved to lift her. See, he rarely advertised himself at this point. But to a thirsty woman who knew she had to be free of the life that she had and had to find some way to be above the cruelty of others, Jesus makes a full disclosure. He told her, the one you long for is here. I am he. What an announcement to break upon the human heart. But that's the message of the gospel. It goes out in various portions to lepers, to widows who were losing their hope, to prostitutes whose hope was gone, to criminals. It goes to children. It goes to parents. It goes to thirsty religious leaders like Nicodemus. And it goes to fishermen from Galilee. You see, it's a different woman who covers the half mile back to Sychar, no longer avoiding people. Instead, she begins to summon them. Come and see him, she says. He's the one. He read my life like a book. That would have made some people take, take notice. Now, let me summarize a couple of points as I move towards a conclusion today. First of all, Jesus is concerned for everybody. He'll come to your life as readily as he came to hers. And diversionary tactics won't work with them. We've got to face who we are and trust his grace. Secondly, we need to remember that the harvest is now. For years and years, hundreds of years, the church has been promoting evangelism or evangelization. And yet there are verses that are in this passage. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. These stories are actually said in the conclusion to the story of the woman at the well. Now, how productive was this side trip for Jesus? Was it really necessary for him to go through Samaria? If we read on, we find this account. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And her testimony was that he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said, but now we have heard for ourselves And we know that this man is really Savior of the world. We have gone on a long journey. These past few months have been difficult on many people. We've been warned against domestic violence being prevalent more than at normal times. We've seen riots break out. We have seen all kinds of social upheaval. Our journey can make us tired. Our journey can almost defeat us. 
We can be hungry and thirsty. Sometimes all we want to do ourselves is to sit alone by the well and have no one to bother us. But let me caution you today that when you stop for a moment, when we stop for a moment ourselves, we'll meet all kinds of people and they've reasons to keep a distance. But don't be stalled by diversionary tactics. And please don't use them, especially with the Lord. Don't lose an opportunity to offer someone else a drink of living water that will truly change their lives. Please pray with me for a moment. Father, thank you again for the opportunity to command this online audience unto you. So many of us have been tired during these days. We have been weary of, of being distanced. We have been weary of the restrictions, and yet we know how necessary they, uh, they actually are. We are anxious to be, to be someplace else doing some other things, and yet we have to be prudent in this time in which we live. If there's one area where we should practice abandon, it is to abandon ourselves to the grace of Jesus Christ. Let this story speak to our hearts today and tell us just how far you will go to pursue someone who needs a draft of living water. And so bless someone today with the knowledge that you will deal with their hurts and deal with their problems and bring them on unto yourself. We bless you and thank you and pray for all those who continue to stand vigilant to help us during this period of time. In Christ's name we ask these mercies. Amen.